This is the C's countdown to the White House. To the White House with Atiawin Mbila Lawson. The time for empty talk is over. Now arrives the hour of action. And make no mistake about it. This campaign will send Donald Trump packing. This campaign is taking off. Join us. Joe Biden would be nothing more than an auto pen president, a Trojan horse for a, a radical agenda. So radical, so all-encompassing that it would transform this country into something utterly unrecognizable. As somebody who has presented my fair share of arguments in court, the case against Donald Trump and Mike Pence is open and shut. Just look where they've gotten us. Presidential frontrunners Donald Trump and Joe Biden are once again trading insults over each other's position on the vaccine for COVID-19. While President Trump has hinted that a vaccine might be available before the November election, former Vice President Joe Biden has expressed skepticism that the president will listen to scientists and implement a transparent process. Welcome to another episode of Countdown to the White House with me, Atiyewin Imbila Lawson. Now recall that on our previous podcast, we spoke about the first term of Donald Trump and the Republican Party. Today, we are discussing the Democratic Party. And my guest is Nana Kofikwache. He's research fellow and adjunct assistant professor in the Department of Health Policy and Management at New York University School of Global Public Health, where he's also a doctoral candidate. Now in 2016, Nana was a staffer for Hillary Clinton's campaign so he clearly is well abreast on matters involving the democratic party welcome to my podcast nana thanks for having me on at you we'll get into matters relating to the democratic party and the like shortly but tell us about your experience as a staffer for the hillary clinton 2016 campaign i mean it, it was really fantastic experience in terms of understanding how a political organization operates within the grand context of a complex political system like the United States. Um, I came on board on the campaign towards the end of the primary season against Bernie Sanders. At the time I came on, we had reached a point where we had basically numerically clinched it, um, but the race was still ongoing. So I, 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 I began in full force on the, in, around the time of the convention, and then when we set up the national headquarters for the, the, the national campaign in Brooklyn um, and expanded it out, um, I, I, I was hired there to do work in what we call state operations and political engagement. And what that entailed on a day-to-day -day basis was, you know, effectively turning a political strategy into real, basic, everyday operations. So how do you... Ten a decision that says we are going to try 
and close the gap in Georgia? How do you really turn that into an outcome? Um, that means you have to set up offices. It means you have to hire personnel. It means you have to find local producers for what we call chum, which is really just, you know, memorabilia from the campaign, badges, pins, yard posts, and all those kind of things. Um, it meant you had to plan out, you know, for the offices, internet access, um, make sure that they were all the things we were doing were within the legal framework of election campaigning in that state and within the legal framework of the federal election guidelines. Um, and then to make sure that on the day-to-day -day basis, as and when their needs arose, um, you could make sure that we're adjusting, you know, logistics and, and, and resources to, to, to keep up with those evolving political demands. Um, you know, over time. Um, but it was, it, was, it was a really fantastic experience. So did you get to meet her at all during this time? Yeah, I mean, she would come to the headquarters occasionally. Um, the, I mean, she herself was on the road quite a bit, but I mean, quite often Bill Clinton would come to the national headquarters, would take photos. I remember shortly after Tim Kaine was announced, she came by the national headquarters. Um, actually, recently when Representative John Lewis, when he passed, um, I actually was looking through some old notes from the campaign, and I remembered I made a, a recording of when he came to speak to us um, at the headquarters as well. What interaction with Hillary Clinton stood out for you the most? Yeah, it was right after the nomination had been officially clinched. Um, so this would actually have been, I think, maybe in July or August, right at that time. Um, there was an event at the Brooklyn Naval Yard where she gave her big speech about, you know, she's wearing the all-white dress, um, you know, pantsuit, and gave the big speech about getting over the finish line. And after that, there was quite an extensive talk with a lot of the staffers there, just really about what we were heading into and what it really meant, um, you know, in terms of the potential to make history. Um, she, you know, gave everybody, you know, she gave some, the, the usual perspective on that, that she always gave on her own experience um, and again, she talked about one of the things that I think really stuck with me from the campaign, which is how she viewed, um, you know, public service, which is, you know, do all the things you can for as many of the people as you can and all the ways you can. And, you know, th that's something that really resonated with me then. It's still something that I think even in my own career, I, I always try and, you know, keep that in mind. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you mentioned that you did meet the late John Lewis, the American statesman and civil rights leader. Yeah, he spoke yes. to us. Um, actually, I, it was actually in October. Because okay. I, I, it was in October 2016. Um, it was late October and he came to the office. And this was actually just around the time that the, um, that the former FBI director, James Comey, had reopened the dossier on the um, you know, the much of a balloon, in my opinion, yes. email scandal. Yeah. Um, and that had a palpable effect on not, uh, not the belief that the election was winnable, because I think, to be fair, to be honest, most of us thought, you know, maybe we had a little bit of skepticism about the gap, but almost all of us thought we were going to win for sure. Um, but it did have an impact on morale and kind of the mood. And he came in just at the right time. I don't know if it was planned, but I remember getting an email, you know, sometime in the early morning saying that he was going to come around. Um, and then a second one, you know, that just said he's on this floor in this place. Um, so we gathered around, they, they put a, like a speaker there with a single microphone. Um, and he talked about, you know, the, the moment and the fact that, you know, he looked at it as a really existential moment for America and that 
it's moments like this that you know that that really brought him into public service. Um, and I remember he, he made a comment about how you know he himself was inspired by people like Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks, and that it's seeing the struggle in this dark time that really got got him interested in politics. Um, and then talked about how you know and because that was what brought him into it and has guided him since then, he's really never looked back. And I remember, I mean, it was, it was a really, really powerful moment. I actually have a recording of it I can, I can share with you. And our listeners can now hear that audio. We can sing, but whatever you do, just that so we did it. Just say to yourself, have what I call an executive session with yourself. <laughs> and, and just say, we did it. Not just for ourselves, but for generation yet unborn. I truly believe if we get it right here in America, maybe we can serve as a model, an example for the rest of the world. When I was very young, I was deeply inspired by the action of Rosa Parks, the words and leadership of Martin Luther King Jr. I met Rosa Parks when I was 17. At the age of 18, I met Martin Luther King Jr. And I got involved in the American Civil Rights Movement. And I have not looked back since. Hillary Clinton met Dr. King. She followed the teaching. Came a lawyer. I don't need to tell you. <laughs> and, but she started working for the Children's Defense Fund. You're listening to Countdown to the White House with me, Atia Wynn in Bila Lawson. My guest is Nana Kofikwache, who was a staffer during the Hillary Clinton 2016 run. Now, just gone by is the voice of the late American statesman and civil rights leader who spoke uh, during the campaign period to the staffers. Nana, we're very grateful for that voice. In wrapping up this part of our conversation on your experience as a staffer, you did mention that the win was, that a win rather was expected. The popular vote you won, but the electoral college voted in favor of uh, now president Donald Trump. From where you sit and with your experience, what went wrong? Well, I mean, I don't think it's as much what went wrong. I think sometimes, you know, that election gets overplayed as some big triumph of, you know, Donald Trump's version of America over, you know, what Barack Obama and his, his era of the Democratic Party stood for. I mean, at the end of the day, um, Hillary beats him by several millions of votes in the popular votes. And in most normal I use normal here, referring to the, the process of democratic elections. In most normal electoral systems, um, you know, she would have won that handily. Um, that's what the polls were saying before, and that's what the popular vote actually translated to in practical terms. The challenge there was the electoral college, and that ends up being a system that, I think in my view, the idea behind it is really to make sure that states get kind of equal representation so that, you know, single states that have very large populations cannot have an oversized sway over who gets elected president. Um, California and New York, for example, are some of the most populous states in America. And those demographics are overwhelmingly democratic. So the, the logic there, for example, you don't want a scenario where two states that have such a huge portion of the American population can determine the, 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 the presidency when there's 48 other states also voting. So the electoral college is meant to be a system that balances that out by looking at population sizes and landmass and other metrics. The problem there is that 
The consequence of it is that it also creates a, an unfair political landscape because in every election where someone has won the popular vote and lost the electoral college vote, it has always been a Democrat. And that is not random because in the parts of America that look more like they did 50 years ago than other parts do, you know, like let's say the parts of the, the Rust Belt and the Midwest that demographically don't look much different than they were in the rural areas, they don't look that different than they were 50 years ago. Those states now have an oversized um, influence on who becomes president over the states that actually look more like what America does look like today, which are states like, you know, uh, New York or, or California or Ohio even. Um, those states look much more um, like, like, you know, like what America actually looks like in its demographic diversity. Um, so it, it, come, it came down honestly to what happened in three states, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. Um, and in those three states, we're talking about a total of 60,000 votes across those three going either way, um, and Hillary Clinton is president. So it, it, I think it was the kind of thing where, if anything, it was a question of maybe running to the finish line, pressing all, you know, maybe, maybe actually going to Wisconsin, um, which we actually skipped uh, during the campaign tour, um, maybe things like that. But I don't think there was any large structural, you know, issue that really compromised, um, you know, the, the actual effect, efficacy of the campaign. And again, I mean, Donald Trump was also a, you know, light, you know, lightning in the blue, you know, candidate. He had managed to really shake up the Republican field and really, I mean, disrupt the entire, you know, establishment of establishment narrative of Republican politics. And I think if anything, maybe some of us in the campaign were too naive about the nature of the American voter. I think for me, for, for sure, I mean, that was a big learning experience, especially coming, you know, being an immigrant in America and working on the campaign. I, I didn't think that there would be enough people who would be gullible enough and I, I say that as respectfully as I can, um, to, to, to buy what he was selling. I actually didn't, didn't believe that people could look at the divisiveness, um, having somebody on record, you know, and with many accusations about sexual, you know, sexual predatory behavior. I didn't think those things would, would, would be let slide because this is the same America in which Bill Clinton, you know, had his troubles and in which, you know, Barack Obama was given a hard time by you know, Republican pundits and, and, you know, officials for putting his feet on the Resolute desk in the Oval Office. Um, it seemed like someone who had, you know, a quite questionable, um, you know, personal, you know, record would, 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 would not really work with that kind of a system. Um, but, you know, alas, you know, I think America had gone through much more change than um, maybe some of us anticipated. But that's, that's all I can attribute to, to what happened there. It's the Electoral College and it's, inherent structural challenges for democratic candidates. Um, and then maybe uh, an underestimation of that sentiment in, in, in America about the frustration with the political establishment and you know the openness because of that frustration um, to somebody who just says they're going to shake it up regardless of who they are or what they stand for. This is the C's countdown to the White House. To the White House. With Atiyawin Mbila Lawson. Let's now look at the Democratic Party and uh, how much it has changed between 2016 and now. What are your observations, Nana? 
I think it's actually quite telling, you know, if, if you look at, I mean, even in 2016, the original platform that Hillary had run on during the primary was quite changed from, um, was quite different from what was actually the final compromise platform that was agreed on at the convention. Um, and that was the product of the pressure that Bernie Sanders and progressives in the Democratic Party put on the more centrist wing, the more establishment wing, to make necessary changes. And if I'm being perfectly honest, I mean, at the time, it had been a very contentious primary. So yeah, I mean, there were some of us who were staffers who still felt some kind of way about the way things had gone and their refusal to concede and all that stuff. But in hindsight, I think their demands about making the compromises were actually spot on. They were, history has proven them correct because many of the things that they were talking about um, as positions that Democrats should take on, you know, defending a, you know, a, a wider, more generous, you know, healthcare uh, policy than Obamacare, um, looking at, you know, more, you know, more direct interventions by the state to help students who are suffering with student loan debt. Those are things that are actually terribly popular among the American public across the aisle. And I think, you know, if like that, that pressure that, that was brought to bear shook the party out of its status quo thinking that there is some, Demo there's some Democratic base and some Republican base, and that there is some conceptual overlap in what they actually want for themselves and for their families. What, what the Bernie Sanders um, campaign and what the progressive um, wing since then has managed to do is really to make it clear that this is actually mainstream thinking, that this is actually what the majority of people in America want for their own lives. And so it's not controversial politics. It's stuff that people should have the courage to stand by and to stand for. And I think that that has made the Democratic Party better. It's made the Democratic Party bolder. But I definitely think it's important also to acknowledge that, you know, there's in so many other political systems and in so many other parties in those other political systems, the status quo would fight that change aggressively. And yes, there have been there have been pockets in the Democratic establishment who have definitely resisted, you know, some of this transition to a more to, to lean further left. But I think if you look at how people like Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer have adapted to the realities, um, you know, have, have been pretty open to the perspectives of, 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 of their new uh, you know, members um, and, and younger people in the larger Democratic Party and have managed to also use their experience of the actual process to guide the Democrats in many real victories you know, even though they don't have, they, they, they didn't have much power, including taking back the House of Representatives in 2018. Um, I think, you know, it, it, it's a better party, it's a stronger party because it's made decisions um, to, to, to um, you know, some tough decisions. Um, and I think coming out of that, you had the party coalescing around um, Joe Biden um, and the full assistance and full support of all the other candidates to make it happen including, you know, Joe Biden, again, showing character and going back to pick, you know, Kamala Harris, who is a phenomenal politician in her own right, but who also gave him the toughest, you know, time in the debates when he first came on. I'd argue that Kamala Harris's, you know, initial salvo against him in the first Democratic debate, I mean, did tremendous damage to Joe Biden's, you know, initial um, campaign because it made him look unprepared for the moment. 
I was coming to the pick of Kamala Harris uh, as vice presidential candidate for the Democratic Party. How surprising was that pick for you? I mean, Kamala Harris was not a surprising pick, you know, to be quite honest. I mean, if I'm being honest, I actually would, I went, when she announced her candidacy, um, my, my personal preferences were for her or Elizabeth Warren. And I, I thought that if you were, if you were trying to find a compromise candidate for all the views in the Democratic Party and all the demographic diversity in the party, <clears throat> that Kamala Harris was a very interesting proposition. She's a phenomenal speaker. She's an incredibly adept politician. She understands the actual nature of American politics and the fact that on some level it operates as, you know, reality TV, you know, in, in the way people view issues and discuss them. And she has the, the the natural charisma to really operate really effectively in that in that kind of a type of an environment. Um, and then on top of that, she also has actual qualifications. You know, she's been the Attorney General of California, and that's not, you know, that, that's nothing to 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 laugh at. I mean, that's you know the the world's seventh largest economy if you separate out from the rest of the United States. And she had shown already that she had she has the guts for campaigning. Um, be, running in a democratic primary in a state like California is a knives out affair because if you win the primary, you're going to win the election. And it's hard to distinguish yourself between other Democrats when you're all saying effectively the same thing about what you believe in. So it comes down to some really raw brass tax politics. And she has survived it several times over to become the attorney general of the United, of, of the U.S. state of California, the first black woman to do that. So she obviously has campaigning ability too and voter appeal as well. So she made a lot of sense a lot of other ways, you know. And I think what Joe Biden was, was, was maybe lacking on the ticket was, you know, he's a very earnest person. He comes across as absolutely genuine. But again, America's politics is really petty. They look at things like how, whether or not you, 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 you know, a man in his 80s you fumbles a few words and says, oh, that means he's senile. So some of those just simple you know, performative, like kind of like pure, you know, campaign kind of things. Kamala Harris has tremendous ability in that. And then obviously beyond that, for somebody in his, you know, again, at his age, just being, you know, perfectly honest, you know, you need to be thinking pragmatically. So as he himself says, you have to pick somebody who is prepared to govern on day one, that if anything should happen, they are ready to be president of the United States, not just vice president. Um, and I think Kamala's, the reason Kamala initially got Joe Biden's voters on her side early in the campaign was because they believed already that she had those presidential credentials and had the ability to prosecute the campaign. We know that Harris and Biden did not see eye to eye on many matters, including health, and they had a very intense exchange of words during the primary. How do they now reconcile these differences? And will the Republican Party not use their previously sour relationship as ammunition? Well, I think it's, it's I mean, that's politics, you know, I mean. In, in the primary, everybody's calculation is that it's going to be them. Nobody goes to the primary thinking they're going to lose. Mm. And especially when they think they're going to lose, that's the time where they will try their best to stay in the race. And sometimes that means, you know, throwing some jobs because you think it's going to work um, and that is going to get you back in. But obviously, 
um, apart from one person in any in any democratic primary or any party's primary for that matter, only one person is correct. Everybody else actually is wrong in their estimation of what they can do or say um, because they believe it's going to work and, and, and win them that. And that obviously plays into how people perceive the consequences. So you're not saying it in the moment because you think it's going to be, you know, a, 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 a free pass for Donald Trump or for some other person's um, you know, opponents at some further point down the line. You're saying it in the moment because you think this is what's going to work based on what the moment actually is, on what your, your read of the moment is. Like with any, any you know, political ticket in a, dem in a democratic election, um, you would expect that the running mates would defer in their policy views to the candidates. And I think, you know, Kamala actually was probably the easiest pick for that dilemma because it would have been much harder to reconcile Joe Biden's view, for example, on healthcare reform um, to that of Elizabeth Warren's or to that of Bernie Sanderson because Joe Biden is really arguing for a more expansive version of Obamacare. Um, which still involves, you know, people getting largely their health healthcare paid for by their by employer-sponsored insurance, um, which is fundamentally different from what Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are advocating for, which is Medicare for all, which is to say, let's have a system where we have a, a single-payer system, like what you have in Canada, where there's one large national health insurance company that everybody pays premiums to, and that pays for everybody's care that negotiates rates with everybody. That's a fundamental shift in the market dynamics of the healthcare sector. Uh, Biden and Kamala had more of, of packaging differences in, 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 in those important policy positions. They, don't, they did not fundamentally disagree on the question of what should healthcare reform look like. Neither of them was advocating for the dissolution of the employer-sponsored health insurance system. They were advocating for you know, a more generous and more equitable version of it. So even though they were describing it in different terms and were looking at different modalities of executing it, they were effectively talking about the same thing. Those are much easier to reconcile, um, you know, through, you know, the different policy tools you use to achieve the, the end you're looking at um, than it is to reconcile different objectives in themselves. And if you look at the differences that Kamala and Joe Biden had, for example, in the primary, many of those contentious moments as we'd say here, had to do with what we'd call maybe non-fat items, you know. Um, it would be things like, um, you know, like the busing issue. Busing was a question of whether or not um, school districts should run a kind of transit system to bring kids from the inner cities to areas where schools are better, to give them better opportunities. And this is something that has to do with decisions being made in the 70s and 80s. So the idea that, it, so when it came up even as a big beef item at that debate, I think a lot of us, even people who had, you know, who worked in the system before, people were surprised because it didn't seem like people, it, it, the initial reaction was kind of like, where is this coming from? But that really reflects the fact that they didn't have real practical differences in their views. So she had to go for things about judgment and character and decision-making. But obviously those are the ones that you can easily fix once you are, on the ticket together by saying, you know, obviously something like, you know, I didn't, I knew, I know them now much better than I knew them then. And if I knew then what I knew now, I would not have said what I said. At this point, is the United States of America 
ready for a female vice president. A black Asian female vice president at that. I think America is. I mean, I think America showed that it was prepared to vote for the majority of Americans were prepared to have a woman be president in 2016. So I continue to believe that a majority of America would certainly be prepared to see a woman as vice president four years down the line. The question I think is about whether or not the structural challenges that the Democrats faced in 2016 have changed in a meaningful way to make it so that that oversized influence of the Electoral College would not play out to their disadvantage in 2020. But as far as the question of America being ready for a female vice president, I think so. I do, I will not be, I'll, I'll be, you know, to be perfectly honest, I do sometimes have an anxiety in my, in, in my gut about whether America is prepared for a black female vice president. Mm -hmm. um, because America is a racist country. That's a, a true statement. America is also a misogynistic country. And I wonder sometimes, um, maybe America can take one or the either in terms of its prejudices, but how will it respond to a female vice presidential candidate who's also a black woman whose parents were immigrants? You know, that is, that is really a daring proposition for America. If you look at what's happened, if you, if you are thinking about 2016 as some kind of rebuke of the Obama version of America, of the United States. So it is, a, it is, yes, a more daring proposition than it was in 2016, and it is a daring proposition in itself. But I think, one, America is showing that it's ready because of what's going on now. It showed that it was ready for even more in 2016 when the majority voted for Hillary Clinton. And you have, as a fail save, the fact that that Joe Biden is also at the top of the ticket, who has great appeal across the divide, especially to those Obama-Trump voters um, who are, are likely to be open to voting for him because they likely voted for Obama in 2008 and 2012 because of Joe Biden in the first place. So I think, yes, it's more daring, yes, it's more risky, but the, the, the demographics are in, are in its favor, the political moment is, is in its favor, and, and I think history is also in its favor. Nana Kofi Kwache was a staffer for Hillary Clinton's 2016 run. And that's how we end today's podcast with 54 days until America decides. Thanks for listening and watch out for the next podcast. Mm -hmm.